No one likes waiting, but sometimes it's unavoidable. The good news is waiting just got a little less stressful and less of a burden on your staff, thanks to ActiveWorks Camp and Class Manager's waitlist tool. When a spot becomes available, an email is automatically sent to the first registrant on the waitlist, giving them a set amount of time to claim their spot. Learn more at www.activenetwork.com forward slash ACA. Welcome to another episode of the Camp Warrior Podcast. I'm your host, Lauren McMillan, and I am so excited to be joined by our Chief Marketing Officer, Kelly Freeridge, and our Director of Content, Alicia Dannenberg. And we are chatting today with Rahel Bayer. And Rahel, CEO of the Bayer Group, is a former sex crimes and child abuse prosecutor who has worked in the field of sexual misconduct and abuse prevention for over a decade. She built her career on creating safe spaces and facilitating change in workplaces globally. Prior to founding the Bayer Group, Rahel was a managing director in the sexual misconduct consulting and investigations division of a global security and consulting firm and an assistant district attorney in both the child abuse slash sex crimes and domestic violence bureaus at the Bronx District Attorney's Office. As a prosecutor, Rahel was responsible for the prosecution and investigation of hundreds of sex crimes, child abuse, and domestic violence cases. As a consultant, Rahel developed and delivered customized interactive workshops, lectures, and trainings for K-12 schools, camps, sports organizations, media outlets, financial firms, law firms, global youth organizations, faith-based organizations, and nonprofits across North America. She is a sought-after and widely renowned speaker for her engaging workshops on the topics of sexual misconduct, abuse prevention and detection, safe social media and electronic communication practices, boundary guidelines, and consent. Over the past decade, Rahel has conducted many highly sensitive and high-profile investigations into allegations of sexual misconduct, harassment, and boundary-crossing behavior. She has leveraged her investigatory skills and expertise as a trained forensic interviewer to ensure respect, neutrality, and a trauma-informed process. Rahel serves on multiple faith-based child protection and advisory committees. She is the author of a curriculum on teaching abuse prevention in specific faith-based communities, has been featured in the media, authored numerous articles, and was recognized by the Jewish Week 36 under 36 in 2017 for her efforts toward preventing sexual abuse, particularly against children. Rahel is a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of Rutgers University and received her Juris Doctorate from Seton Hall University School of Law. I mean, just wow. <laughs> Amazing. You, you've <laughs> done so much, and I can't wait to get into this conversation. Rahel, welcome to the Camp Bar Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Lauren. I feel like you forgot the one most important thing, which is, and I'm a camp person. Oh, and, and she's a camp. camp person, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're so excited to have you join us. So let's just jump right in with the first question. So when we're looking at our current policies and practices, how should we approach evaluating the effectiveness of our abuse prevention training and policies to make improvements as needed? And on top of that, what if we don't have a training or our state does not require one? Where should we start? 
So I think the first thing is to realize that even just asking the question is significant in figuring out what the answer is, right? Most states are not going to necessarily require the same thing, and it may not be consistent, and it may not be about best practices. Like you have certain Department of Health that will say to camps, you have to do certain things, but that doesn't mean that they're required to do an effective training or have effective policies, right? So I think that when we look at answering that question, what we have to say is sometimes we don't know what we don't know. And if we don't even know the questions to ask, like what kind of policies should we have? Like if we have none, what should we do? Are all abuse prevention policies actually the same, right? Are we talking about one type of policy or one type of training? So I almost think that in order to answer that, we have to step back and say, what are abuse prevention policies? What is effective abuse prevention training? Thank you for that. And I'm going to follow up when we talk about training, especially with camps getting closer to the um, 2023 season. By the way, this is Alicia. For those of you listening out there, as you start to identify our voices, um, when we t when we train staff in abuse prevention, camps sometimes find that it's challenging because some staff feel uncomfortable around this topic. It can be presented as a scary manner, as a um, uncomfortable topic. So what kind of advice do you have for staff um, around training that's both educational and approachable? So I think the first thing is, again, to look at the idea that abuse prevention can mean a variety of different things, right? In many, many camps, what I always recommend is there should absolutely be, you know, information about the different forms of abuse and mandated reporting, but a huge focus should be on boundaries. And boundaries are not scary. And I think that at times, the question of like, what do we do when something is super scary is that we're kind of used to this idea of some sort of training or video that makes everybody feel like they're pedophiles or makes everybody feel like abuse is inevitable. It's definitely going to happen. Or like, we're going to talk about things in such graphic detail that you are going to be triggered, whether you're a survivor or not, because it's overwhelming to think about. And so I think a lot of this is in recognizing it's not a one size fits all approach, that there are a lot of ways to approach safety. There are a lot of ways to think about abuse prevention training. And there are a lot of ways to engage your staff, especially before you're ready to do that training, where you first of all, let them know it's coming. Like I can tell you that if somebody were to bring me in for training, I always say to them, please let your staff know what we're going to be talking about. If someone would find that triggering, it's important that they have the opportunity to A, prepare themselves, B, potentially have a conversation with you and figure out whether they can do this training or not. And I think the other thing is a lot of times we as the people that are running camps or the people that are administering, you know, are the administrative team in camps are thinking about how scary it is. Well, like, let's think about something else at camp. Like swimming is scary, right? If, if there is a child that doesn't survive in the pool, that is beyond terrifying, right? Drowning is terrifying. But that doesn't actually stop anybody from figuring out what best practices are in an aquatic facility, what best practices are in 2023, in 2024, with regard to like lifeguard safety. And think of how many camps have started to shift to this place of training their counselors on swimming safety, even if they're not the lifeguards, because 
You want to make sure that you're doing your best and no one is doing training by explaining in detail what will happen biologically if somebody drowns, right? Nobody has to go into the nitty gritty detail in order for someone to realize, oh my gosh, this is serious. This is important. This is a value of camp. And so I always say to people like, Instead of worrying about how scary it will be, let's figure out what training you need, what would be most effective, and the best way to reach your staff in a non-scary but very empowering way. Amazing. And Lauren, I hope it's okay. I want to go off script just a little bit. Um, and Rahel, I want to talk a little bit about creating a culture of abuse prevention at camp. You just compared a program like swimming and how the camp staff are trained around the importance of that program and how it impacts the entire camp staff. If we can make that comparison and if you could share your ideas around how if you create a culture of abuse prevention at camp and it is woven into all of what you do and not just a two-hour module at staff training, what are the benefits of that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I almost think that in order to answer that, we have to think about the benefits of the ripple effects of everything in camp, right? What are the benefits of teaching a song at the beginning of camp, right? That no one wants to sing. Like it is, it feels like kitschy or it feels like just like weird or everybody's still in that mode of like, wait a second, where's my phone? Did camp start? Right. And, and, and imagine that like first day where you teach this like special cheer or this song and then you do it every day. And it just becomes a part of the fabric of camp so much so that by the end of camp, every single kid, including the like most sarcastic kid who is like, I am not a camp person, is like standing on, on a bench or like on a table cheering like their heart out because it's become a fabric. And it's not because someone got up and said, learn the song or like learn the cheer, or if you don't cheer, bad things will happen and you won't have a good time. This is your list of what you need to do in order to cheer well. Like nobody does that, right? We just decide this is a value and we weave that value in, in different moments of camp. So sometimes you cheer in the lunchroom, right? Or in the cafeteria or whatever you call it, right? All the different terminology. Sometimes you cheer outside. Sometimes you cheer by the lake. Sometimes you cheer on the bus when you're going to the bowling alley for that really cool activity and everybody thinks that you like lost your mind, right? When we think about abuse prevention, I think the piece that we have to realize is that we know that camp is all about building leaders. We know that campers build something when they go to camp, the resilience aspect of what camp does, the independence, the ability to work through complicated and tough situations. We know that with staff, being on staff at camp is probably one of the best indicators of how you will succeed as an adult in life. Because if you can keep like 15 kids alive, and you can do it with smiles on their faces, knowing how many complicated factors there are in a group of 15 kids, then like, you can absolutely have, you can say anything in a boardroom, right? Like you can transfer these skills. And so when we look at what leadership is or how we build or empower or create that dynamic, nobody gives a laundry list of what people are supposed to do or not do. You create an environment and you do it 
by planning what your values are. And if we took abuse prevention as a value, creating safe spaces, being able to speak up, being feeling that you will be supported if something feels unsafe or uncomfortable, feeling like things should never be kept secret, then these values permeate through what camp is. And all of a sudden, without even using scary terminology, you've created an environment of abuse prevention, right? And that's part of the reason why we do put so much of a focus on boundaries, because they're not scary. They're about creating a healthy camp environment. They're about keeping people safe. And they're about identifying concerning behavior without using scary words. One of the many reasons you're an exceptional leader in this space is, is your understanding of camp language. And, and that breakdown you just gave us was fantastic. This is Kelly, by the way. I'm so excited to be here with you today. I wanna to ask a question about the role of technology. And I know that um, a lot of camp experiences themselves are, are time away from technology and they're tech-free spaces. However, um, we're seeing this kind of intersection of, of technology and youth in general happening. So what are the trends that you're seeing about the role technology plays in abuse? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that the biggest issue that we're seeing is this shift in understanding that abuse doesn't just occur in person, it also occurs online, right? And that one, when we think about the past few years and we think about the access that kids have to all forms of technology, to all types of social media, irrespective of ages or whether something was meant to be directed towards that particular age group, we're seeing a huge influx of a lot of types of, of crimes, honestly, and abuse that's occurring against kids on phones and on technology. But in addition to that, what we're seeing, and I, you know, I see, I can say what we are seeing, but really I think it's the professionals in the field that are doing a lot of this work is that there's also this increase and almost like a desensitization of how significant our actions are with each other when it comes to how we text, what we text, what pictures we take, what images we take, you know, what it means to put an embarrassing photo or video of someone on a TikTok or, you know, on TikTok or on a WhatsApp or in some sort of group chat or Snapchat or something where we take someone's ability to give consent for something away from them, right? Things that might appear funny or silly to a 13-year-old kid because they're taking this moment of embarrassment of their friend that's 13 years old, and then essentially making it something that can go viral for everybody to see. And that humiliation, right? What we used to think of as cyberbullying has shifted a lot. And I think that one of the reasons why it's so important to acknowledge this is because especially in a day camp, where you have staff and campers that are going to have their phones or access to their phones, right? It's not the same as a sleepaway camp where campers may not have access to their phones. We have to think about what's happening from a technological perspective in terms of how we think about our staff to camper interactions, our staff to staff interactions, our camper to camper interactions. And I also think even in sleepaway camp, if campers do not have their phones, staff still do, right? There is not a camp that I know of. And if you are one of those camps, reach out to me. I would love to meet you. Where staff have their phones taken away at the beginning of the summer and they get them back at the end of the summer. And so we have to think about a lot of that because, you know, 
four years ago or five years ago, I don't think a camp director would have expected that something that happens on two counselors night, nights off, right, that was recorded and then disseminated and sent around would land on their desk as a complaint of behavior in the middle of the summer. And I think that that's a lot of what people are navigating right now in camp. Thank you for that. And to continue the conversation around um, camps and those types of educational resources, let's say this example of our current training not reflecting any training or educational materials on the role of technology and abuse, where can we find resources and where do camps start that process? Well, that is a great, that is a great question. The truth is, you know, there's a lot of really good information out there on certain websites that focus on, you know, safety and technology. If you literally Google things like, you know, sextortion with kids, teaching them, you know, teaching people about sextortion or cyberbullying or safety, you'll come up with a lot of different websites. But the truth is that there isn't one that's dedicated towards thinking about these issues with camps because they are unique and they are different. And so what I would say is first assess, before you start looking for like free resources, first assess what kind of camp are you, right? Are you a sleepaway camp? Are you a day camp? What are your technology rules and policies? Um, what do you have on the books already, right? Who has access to phones? When do they have access to phones? And then I would look like if you are a day camp at enacting very specific policies under very specific umbrellas, staff and campers do not connect on cell phones, period, not on social media, not by texting, period, right? You need to put policies on the books about staff-to-staff -staff interactions, what is okay and what is not, and what will fall under your sexual harassment policy, right? And if you're a day camp, consider the ability to maybe not have campers have their phones during the day. And by the way, I want to include smartwatches along with phones. Because one of the things that we can see and one of the things that we have seen is anything that has the ability to take a picture, a photo, an image that a kid is taking into a bathroom with them, that a kid is taking into a private changing area where maybe it's not so private because it's camp and kids are changing in like, you know, places that they probably shouldn't be changing in like your specific area. What policies do you have in place about whether kids are allowed to have those things in camp? What are they allowed to do? And what are your no tolerance policies? And I think along those lines, we don't want to forget that staff should never be taking pictures or videos of campers. They should never be posting them on social media, not on their stories, which disappear after a period of time, not on a text message to a parent, right? Nobody should be taking photos or videos of minors and taking it upon themselves to post it or send it or something of that sort. And I think for those of you that are listening that are sleepaway camps, you can now distill down, okay, now what do we need to do given what our technology policies are in camp? Who has phones? Who doesn't? What do we need to institute? So you know where you come for those free resources? Right here, this podcast. Just send it around to everybody. And, and they just got their free resources. Excellent. Really, really good insights for how. Uh, we've had a number of questions about the limitations of background checks recently, right? We think about this a lot. And, and honestly, I, I think every camp I've ever met is running background checks, which is amazing. We, we love that. We love a good background check, right? But why is it important to understand the limitations of background checks? 
Yeah. So I liken background checks to the bare minimum of what you have to be doing in case something goes wrong. Right. So like if you really break it down, um, it's kind of one of these situations where background checks are only going to tell you whether someone has been convicted of a crime in the particular location that you are doing the background check in. Right. People think background checks and they think that they're going to get this like massive amount of information. Was a person ever arrested? Were they accused of something? Was there an investigation? Were they fired from somewhere? Was there a concern with kids? But that's not what a background check shows. And a lot of times we have to know what it is that we're actually asking for. So when we run a background check, you want to make sure that you're focused on a criminal background check. You want to make sure that you're focused on checking the sex offender registry or doing a sex offender registry check to complicate things further. There are many states where there are multiple levels of sex offenders. And for example, in New York, where I am, level one sex offenders are not actually on the registry. So you have to know what exists in your state. And then when you run a criminal background check, unless you are running something, you know, that is you know, I almost want to say like federal in nature, you're doing fingerprinting or something of that sort that is very clearly running it in all all states in the entire country. Um, most background checks are only going to run the states that you input. So you're going to need to know that your staff member has lived or worked in New York, Wisconsin, and California, and then click background checks in those states. But what happens if they were convicted of something in like Arkansas? right? That's not going to necessarily pull it up. So the first thing you need to know is the limitation of actual background checks. What does it show and what does it not show and how limited in scope it can be? And then the second thing you have to think about is how many times will you have a 19-year-old that's been convicted of a crime? Like your staff is young and background checks are not going to show an investigation. They're not going to show an arrest and they're not going to show suspicions of boundary crossing behavior. And so a lot of times you might have someone hear that and say, okay, then why are we even doing it to begin with? Well, you're doing it because if you do end up having a registered sex offender who's working in your camp and you could have known that from a background check and you did not do that, that is really bad, right? We know that that's really bad. But at the same time, recognizing that the limitations of that are not, they're not like a, this means that everybody is safe to be in your camp. That's just a knowledge base that everybody has to have. It's kind of like, like at a bare minimum, you want to make sure that there is edible food in your camp. And you want to make sure that the food that you have has not expired like six months ago, right? And is totally freezer burned. Like that's your bare minimum. You want it to be edible. Maybe it doesn't have to be delicious, but it actually has to be good enough that it's not gonna give kids like, like food poisoning. And then you go from there. What kind of camp are you? Do you have breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Is it important for you to think about nutrition and how active these kids are? And I almost want people to think about background checks in the same way that they might think about like, oh, giving kids food isn't just about like finding the expired meat from a year ago and heating it up and being like, here's dinner, right? So if we break it down in that way, it becomes much simpler to understand. It's just a baseline. I do, I do have a, a follow-up question for Rahel because I think you made a really great point about a 19-year-old maybe staff member maybe not having been convicted of a crime. Something I hadn't thought about before too are, are the 
you know, the fact that this 19 year old staff member was recently a minor. And so there could have been boundary crossing in their academic record. I mean, there, there's a lot of places that, um, you know, questionable behavior could show up outside of even a criminal record. Is that, is that something that, that you've thought about or, or approached in any way? Yeah, I mean, I think that part of it is just acknowledging where, where the concerns are, right? And recognizing it and then being able to figure out how to kind of plug those holes. So for example, you absolutely could have a 19-year-old staff member who maybe has worked in another camp before and wasn't invited back because of boundary crossing behavior, right? Whether it was with other staff members or with campers. And that's part of the reason why you can't just hire everybody that applies. And that's also the reason why when you think about doing your interviews and you think about reference checking, I always say to people like, look at what they put on their application and look at what's missing, right? So like, look at the fact, and I say this as somebody who has worked in multiple camps, working in multiple camps is not a red flag that there's an issue, right? Like I, I used to say like, and if someone's jumped from place to place, like maybe that's a red flag. And then I realized like, I have literally worked in multiple camps throughout my entire life of being like a counselor and, you know, moving to different places that in and of itself is not a red flag. But if you see that they've worked at three camps before, or that they spent their entire life at one camp. Then they shifted to another camp for like the final two years and then maybe worked at a camp as a young counselor. Then, and, and they give as references like one of the people or one of the directors of one of those camps. Look at the other places that they put there and say, hey, I may not know anybody from these places, but I'm going to call up the director and be like, hey, I have an application from someone who used to go to your camp or worked at your camp for one summer. Like, can we have a conversation? Can we talk? Right. And if they say to you something like, all I can say is that they worked here and were employed, then that's usually a red flag that there's some there's something that they're not allowed to say, or they feel that they can't say, right? Because most of the time, if you had somebody who grew up in your camp, who you know as a director, you'd be like, kid was awesome, really amazing, like, like, like or, or quiet, but a really great camper, and like, sad that they're not working here, but thrilled that you get them, right? Like, when you think about responses, that is why you do reference checking. You don't reference check based on the two people that I give you on my application. Those people are going to say I'm fine. They're going to say I'm great. It's also the reason why when you think about whoever is doing your interviews or interview process, I always recommend um, and acknowledge that doing interviews for camp can be time consuming and arduous and like adding an extra layer to it is just not something that always feels doable. But what if you considered adding one question in in your interviews that was more of a boundary like question? Okay. Let's say you have a kid that's super, super homesick, and that kid only feels better when they're out in nature. And that's what they've told you. And they really like to go on walks. And it's eight o'clock at night, and the entire bunk is like, you know, down at the field doing X, Y, and Z. And this kid is so homesick. And they turn to you and they say, I really need to go for a walk. What do you do? Right? Like something so simple which actually will give you a whole lot more information than like, what did you like about camp? 
So when we think about what it means to plug the holes from a lack of a background check, it's not that there's going to be a perfect system. It's that when you look at references and you look at interviewing effectively and you look at just making sure that that person doesn't have those obvious red flags, you put yourself in a better position. What you have also done is positioned your camp as caring about boundaries which is a real signal to someone who wants to work at your camp to do something that maybe isn't so great with kids that like, maybe this is not the right camp for them. Because if you care enough about this to ask a question in the interview and you share with them the kind of training that you do, then all of a sudden they're like, well, maybe I'll skip your camp and I'll go somewhere else. And maybe if every camp did that, it wouldn't, there wouldn't be an opportunity for that person. Awesome. Very well said. So Really the last question that we have on here that we can maybe hang out here for a little bit is that some camps have started training their parents and caretakers in abuse prevention. What does that look like in practice? Because I imagine that that then extends beyond the camp season and the camp session itself and can continue throughout the year. So what does that look like? And if a camp wanted to provide this kind of training, where would they start? And also what are the benefits of even doing that in the first place? Yeah, I mean, it's a new it's a new thing that I've seen pop up over the course of the last year. Um, I actually think it's amazing. As somebody that sends my own kids to sleepaway camp and also to day camp, thinking about it from both a parent's perspective as well as a professional's perspective, um, it's a very cool thing. I have now seen a few different camps run parent nights on Zoom right? This technology that was pretty new to us like a few years ago, which now is something that we're all pretty skilled in. Um, And to actually say to parents, like, we're going to be running a parent night on Zoom a few weeks before camp, not the night before camp, not three nights before camp, not the night before duffels are supposed to go out, right? Not at times that are super inconvenient, but we're going to be running like a Sunday morning or an evening Zoom for parents where we're going to share with you what some of our policies are, how we think about creating safe spaces and abuse prevention where, you know, I I mean, I have been a guest on many of these uh, over this past this past year on on a number of these um, where, you know, a camp director will say, we want to share with you how we train our staff, how we value this in our camp, you know, and I'll come on and talk about how we train their staff or kind of how we think about policies. But then also, how can you as a parent talk to your kid especially those kids who are going to sleepaway camp about abuse prevention in a non-scary way. This is, and, and you know, part of it is that parents are sending their kids away and they are not speaking to them for four weeks, for two weeks, for three weeks, for seven weeks, for eight weeks, but right? it's a very long time. And when we think about the amazing things that could happen in camp, you also want to balance that with something could happen to a kid that makes them feel unsafe, that doesn't rise to the level of abuse, but makes them feel unsafe or makes them feel uncomfortable. And as a camp, the environment that is going to be most amenable to having an abuse-free environment is one that cares about safety and cares about a kid feeling unsafe. And so that might look like here are three things that you could talk to your kids about. Here are all the different point people, camper care teams, division heads, 
and their pictures on the Zoom. And here's where they are on the website that you can show your kids to. You know, one of the things that we might talk to kids about on that first night is it's really hard to speak up if you feel unsafe or you feel uncomfortable. And we know that it's really hard, but maybe if they hear from you and they hear from us, all the different options of the different types of people they can they can go to, even for something that might feel really little to them, we want them to know that we are a place that will hear them, that will listen to them, and that this is a value that we have, right? So the idea of bringing parents in is that when we think about the, what I like to call the trifecta of creating safe spaces, it's policies, training, and communication. And part of that communication is how we reach our parents so that they understand our values, how we prioritize certain things, and how we prepare kids to walk into camp. And so, you know, it's something new. It's something different. It wasn't done a few years back, but at the same time, new and different can actually be something that can create tremendous safe spaces. Great. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think you're exactly right. I mean, this is something that I know as a camper growing up, I, I don't think that's, I don't know that my parents were having those kind of conversations, but at the same time, I don't think that was just kind of in the, in the mindset of when we're looking at camp and preparing to go to camp, we were thinking more about like, what do we need to pack? And like, what color is my trunk Mm -hmm. going to be? And I love that you're making this that going back to the culture shift and making it something that is just part of it and not this scary other separate thing. I love the way that you're illustrating, just making it part of the conversation and about the preparation so that it just becomes seamless and woven into the fabric and and can change the culture and create so many more safe spaces. So Rahel, before we start to wrap up, is there anything that we have not touched on that you would like to, to share or discuss? I think that for me, you know, for all the camp professionals that are listening here, I think a lot of times we have a hard time looking at what we've already done or what we've done in the past and saying, you know, is this an area where we can improve? I think that there are a lot of camps who know that they need to prioritize this in some way, right? That this is something that's so important. And so what I would say to everybody here is, you know, take a look at what you do. Take a look at your policies. Take a look at your training. Is there something new and innovative that should be brought into your camp this summer or that you should be doing in your camp this summer? Is there something that moves beyond, you know, a a video, right? Or a training that's done that feels like very rote or check the box or a laundry list of don'ts, Right. I want us to think about what camp can do in terms of building leaders. I want us to think not about training as the requirement that you just check off a list, but as a way of building something in our staff that will cultivate safe spaces because they are going to go on and build things in this world and be leaders in this world. And if your camp is the place where they have learned the value of what it means to create a safe space, then think of the ripple effects of what you've done. And so, you know, more than checking the box, I'd ask everybody to go back and say, are we doing what we should? And now are we doing what we could? Right. And those are two very different questions. And as opposed to being overwhelmed by it, I'd ask everyone to like, think of it as a privilege It's a privilege to have campers in camp, and we know this. We had a summer where we didn't, 
It's a privilege to have our camps open. It is a privilege to train our staff. It is a privilege to be in this environment because we know how much amazing stuff can happen. So we have an opportunity to use that privilege and we should. So good. I hope our listeners are taking notes. And if you weren't, rewind, play it again, (laughs) write it down. That was incredible. Um, and I also, I want to make sure I open the floor, Alicia, Kelly, is there anything that the two of you are curious to, to discuss more or ask, ask about that, that you all haven't. I just want to thank you, Rahel, for joining us today. Um, your thought leadership is so appreciated and, um, I'm so grateful that you join us at, at our conferences and on the podcast and, and sometimes in camping magazine. Um, it's just really, really exciting to hear, um, new ideas and amazing thought leadership come from you. So thank you. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. I love talking about camp. <laughs> and for for our listeners who um, want to know more, I know you've shared a number of resources in this conversation, and we'll be sure to put links to those in the show notes. But if people are interested in, in diving into this and to maybe they're thinking and reframing their mindset that, yes, this is a privilege and and we are now viewing this differently and want to take it more seriously and put it at the forefront. How can they either get in touch with you? How can they get started on some of this work right away? Where can they go? How can they learn more? What do you recommend? And of course, we'll be able to link anything you want to share. Sure. Yeah, no, I I share a lot of um, free resources on social media. You can find me on Instagram under, and I'm going to spell it because it's not so obvious, Rachel.Bayer. It's R-A-H-E-L dot B-A-Y-A-R. Our website is thebayergroup.com, B-A-Y-A-R group.com. We're on Facebook under the Bayer Group. You can find us on LinkedIn as well. Um, And I think, you know, for anybody that wants to reach out, please feel free. And I I also think that one of the things that we should be doing is sharing resources with each other. So turning to the camp directors and the camps in your area, you know, and saying, hey, do you have updated policies? What do you do for training? Do you want to maybe join together for training, right? Like there are actually a number of camps that are in a similar area where I will go in and they'll bring all their staff together from two or three different camps. It helps defray the cost. It also helps to like streamline what's happening, especially especially in camps where people might take nights off or days off together, right? Things that we don't think about Um, and saying like, Hey, like, do we maybe want to think about training or do we want to think about policy work or do we want to do it together? So please feel free to reach out um, or find us on social media. And this was really a pleasure. Yes. Alicia, Kelly, thank you so much for for joining us to co-host today. And Rahel, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your expertise. It is invaluable and we so appreciate you and we appreciate you our listeners thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the camp Wara podcast if you haven't done so be sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any upcoming episodes check out the resources available in the show notes to learn more about today's episode and as always be sure to follow the american camp association at aca camps across all social media platforms